0: Today is one of those days where I wonder if Harriet Tubman, if she ever wanted to leave some folks behind because they were just a threat to whatever little mental peace she might have had. Did she ever say to herself, self, some of y'all can't go with me or at least wish that they couldn't go. Now, we have to have a conversation podcast, family, and it's not going to be an easy conversation because I always dread when I have to take the position of having to criticize black men. Y'all got it bad enough out here without me adding on any additional weight to your shoulders. But what I have to say needs to be said. The word of the week is support. Don't know if you caught Meg The Stallion's incredible performance on Saturday Night Live. Uh, but during her performance, she had the words protect black women emblazoned all over the stage and all in her backdrop. She even played a clip of activist Tamika Mallory going in on Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, the Black man who declined to pursue murder charges or even manslaughter charges against the police who killed Breonna Taylor. Meg The Stallion's performance created a lot of controversy. But the reason Meg The Stallion, myself and other Black women have to constantly say protect Black women is because too many Black men still don't. At best, it's situational. And Meg Thee Stallion's own personal situation is a huge indicator of that. So I saw a tweet from Katrina Pearson. And let me just say right now, I don't follow Katrina Pearson, but her tweet made its way to my timeline. She tweeted, shout out to Ice Cube for his willingness to step up and work with the Donald Trump administration to help develop Platinum Plan. Leaders going to lead, haters going to hate. Now, let me explain a few things before I get to the heart of this very delicate matter. Katrina Pearson is a black woman and also an advisor to Donald Trump. The Platinum Plan is Donald Trump's attempt to act as if he cares about Black issues. I've read the plan. And let's just say, if you believe that Donald Trump will fulfill anything in this plan, considering he's told more lies than any president during my lifetime and probably yours too, then there's a special bridge that's built on quicksand that I'd love to sell you. Now, as my regular listeners know, Ice Cube was a guest on this podcast, and we talked extensively about his contract with Black America, which detail what would best help our community from financing to education. Ice Cube has made it clear, and he's been doing this for months, that Black people should withhold their vote until either Joe Biden or Donald Trump come up with a comprehensive strategy that adequately competes for the Black vote. It should be said, Joe Biden on his website has his plan for Black America. If you haven't read it, go look and find it, because what I don't want to hear is what's Joe Biden's plan. It's on his website. Go look for it. Now, right before I saw this news about Cube, I read a column written by Blavity's Terrence Woodbury. I don't know him, um, but his column confirmed what I saw happening, but didn't believe was actually happening. I thought it was like an optical illusion or rather I hoped it was. But there it is. As of September, 18 percent of black men under 50 say they support Donald Trump. Terrence Woodbury wrote about how Donald Trump is targeting black men because he's hoping for either one of two things. One that he can get at least 10 percent of black men to vote for him or two, he can depress the black vote enough so that he benefits. Now, Donald Trump has found a major weakness in Joe Biden's campaign. And that weakness is black men, because from the last election, the support of Trump from black men has doubled. So now I'm going to say that part that needs to be said. If you are a black man that supports Donald Trump, it is a slap in the face to black women. You can't claim that you love black women and you support black women and then sell us out by voting for Donald Trump. Ninety eight percent of black women voted against Trump in 2016. And I assume those numbers will be basically the same in this current election. And I'm still pissed at the two percent of black women who might have voted for Donald Trump. Now, that's the reason why Donald Trump has not come up with a plan to address black women, because he knows we're a lost cause. We ain't voting for him. Now, if as a black man, the health, safety and well-being of black women isn't part of your voting plan, then you aren't voting for black people. You're voting for yourself. Black women overwhelmingly support reproductive rights, which Donald Trump and his administration are trying to take away. Black women get paid 61 cents on the dollar compared to white men, which Donald Trump has no remedy for or has shown any concern to fix. He hasn't said shit about the gender wage gap. Black women are four times more likely than any other racial group to die giving birth. And right now, Donald Trump is trying to end Obamacare and has never presented a health care plan. Trans, queer and lesbian black women have been subjected to discrimination and hostility by this administration, which has banned trans soldiers, allow businesses to use religious freedom to engage in outright bigotry toward these marginalized people. Over 200,000 people have died from COVID-19 because of this president's incompetence, which includes a disproportionate number of black people. That includes black women, mothers, grandmothers, great grandmothers, aunties, sisters, cousins and friends. Donald Trump has been the most corrupt, dishonest president in history. Yes, worse than Richard Nixon. And I don't know why anyone would ever think he cares about anything beyond his personal interests. I do understand that Trump's message is resonating with black men because he's a businessman, one that has failed extensively, but he still discusses economics and he also has discussed criminal justice. He has strategically spent millions on Facebook ads, which reiterate the message that Joe Biden wrote the 94 crime bill, which exploded mass incarceration and had an adverse effect on black men. His campaign also has an ad featuring Alice Johnson, the black woman he gave a full pardon after she served 21 years in prison. He has touted the First Step Act, which is legislation that curb mandatory minimums, free nonviolent offenders, prevents pregnant prisoners from being shackled, as well as other things. But I need for black men to critically think about a few things. The 94 crime bill doesn't exist anymore. Was it a mistake? Hell yeah. But we need to be real about the fact that the majority of Black mayors supported the crime bill. The Congressional Black Caucus supported the crime bill, as did many Black people who were seeing their neighborhoods completely transformed by the crack cocaine epidemic. It sounded good to a lot of people. Now, we can't take a hard look at Joe Biden and then absolve ourselves. A lot of us thought that bill was necessary before learning tragically the hard way how much damage it actually did. Secondly, Is Kim Kardashian your homie? If she's not, then you won't be freed from prison the way Alice Johnson was. That has nothing to do with black men at all. Unless you have a business, and I mean the kind of business where you are paying multiple employees, making a substantial amount of money, then voting for Trump for tax reasons for your business doesn't make any sense. And even if it does make sense, and I say this as a woman who has three businesses, Do you think so little of yourself and others that you would willingly vote for a racist for a tax cut? As for the First Step Act, that was bipartisan legislation that was widely popular. It was not created by Trump's administration. The bill has been worked on since 2015, which is before Donald Trump came into office. All he basically had to do was sign it. And he was shrewd enough to know he needed something that he could take to black people. So at some point, Some of us might say, "Eh, maybe he's not so bad. It's just sad to see so many black men falling for this particular banana in the tailpipe. It hurts my heart when I see comments on Facebook from black men about how they like Donald Trump because he keeps it real. As if there's some special prize to be won for people who are loud and wrong and lie all the time. And for the record, Donald Trump has said he does not support police reform of any kind. He does not think there is institutional racism in policing. And virtually every case of the police shooting a black person unjustly, he sides with the police. I'm not here to cape for the Democratic Party either, so please don't read it that way. The way my voting works, though, is I vote for the people who are the most vulnerable, the people who have just enough to get by, the people who have poor health care, the people who have to work two and three jobs just to make a living. And I vote for black women because I know We are the least protected in this society. I just wish more brothers thought the same. And that is why the word of the week is support. It's kind of appropriate that I went so hard about policy because my guest today has a direct influence on important and even non-important policy matters. Now, some of you probably have seen some of her videos because so many of them have gone viral. She is the reason. Or at least one of the reasons that congressional hearings have become must see television viewing. Katie Porter, who represents the 45th district in California, has truly become the people's champion. Representative Porter and her whiteboard is like Jon Snow and his sword. She has diced up and humiliated many an official in important congressional hearings. Now she is part of a new wave of representatives that do not come from Typical politically connected circles, but rather they're just real people, real people who deal with real problems, who have to make real sacrifices. So they have a level of empathy and an outlook and a perspective that many politicians simply don't have. Katie Porter is a single mother of three children, a survivor, and she drives a minivan with over 120,000 miles on it. She's my kind of politician. And I know after you hear what she has to say on this podcast, she'll be yours too. Representative Katie Porter, up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. This feels very bizarre to say to somebody who is as Wonderful and awesome as a politician, as you are a congresswoman, I should say, let me not undersell your title is like, I'm a really big fan of yours. And I, that's such a bizarre thing to say about an elected official. But like a lot of people, I've seen you in action. And um, you know, certainly have uh, been exposed to your brilliance. So you're the—I mean, you're uh, you're somebody I'm, I'm a fan of. So I, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a whole Katie Porter hive out here, and I'm proud to be in the hive. Does it does it feel kind of bizarre that you have become a celebrity, even though your job is to obviously represent the people in your district?
1: Well, I think it's really good that people are aware of what is going on in Congress. So to the extent that they're watching clips of me in hearings, or they're seeing me talk about issues in a way that connects with them, that's good because that's connecting people to government. Um, And that's really part of the job. And I think it's part of the job for too long, um, people haven't really focused on. And so I think a lot about that, having been a teacher, that part of my job is to share the information That I either have or can get if I'm doing my job well with the American people. And sometimes that's doing TV shows, sometimes that's doing podcasts like this, sometimes it's it's doing you know videos on Twitter or hearings. This afternoon I somehow got talked into a cooking thing on Instagram live, which is sure to be an utter disaster. But I think the goal is to really recognize that part of your job is to answer the questions of the American people, to help them understand what's happening in government. So the, the whole sort of like people wanting me to sign their t-shirt and stuff, like that part is very weird for me. Um, I was a professor before this, which is definitely where I think smarter people go to seek obscurity is academia. So this is a very, very different um, kind of setup, but I am gratified that people are connecting with their government working for them.
0: Well, your your hearings and when people know that you're going to be questioning somebody, be it Louis DeJoy or or whoever else, um, is that it becomes almost like a must-see event um, that people want to see who, like Katie Porter about to get in somebody's ass today. I need to see it.
1: <laughs> no, I'm starting to get a little bit nervous about it. Like, I, I think it's really hard to know what you're going to get out of any given witness um, and so I think you always just try to prepare as best you can. We question last um, yeah. on oversight and the last person to go. Um, and so, you know, I think there's some element of having watched the witness, having seen how they react, um, where are their weaknesses, where are they obfuscating, where are they stonewalling, um, and then being able to, to use that information, right, um, to go into it.
0: So I know you get asked this question a lot, but certainly as a, as a journalist, I'm fascinated by this. It's, uh, I, I saw an Instagram um, story that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did about how she prepares for a hearing. Um, what is your methodology in terms of preparing for a, a he- hearing? How do you know which questions you want to ask? Like, how do you kind of make those determinations?
1: Yeah, Alex is... Um Instagram story about that was wonderful because it really peeled back the curtain for people to be able to see how we do our work. So I actually like to talk about this um, and it's something that I have kind of refined over time. Um, We start with the topic of the hearing and try to move very quickly from the topic, which is like the Postal Service, to what do we want to accomplish with this hearing, right? So we, we want to get DeJoy to answer this particular question or we want to get this witness to see this problem and put public pressure on them to acknowledge this problem. So we try to move to not so much the topic, but like, what is the thesis? What is the, what is the argument or outcome that we're trying to get from the hearing? And then we'll often um, bat around with my staff, maybe two or three staffers will think up, because that's all I have, is two or three legislative staffers. So that's the whole team on the field. Um, and we'll, we'll come up with some ideas. Um, not all ideas are good. Um, and my staff and I have that as a very conscious motto. And then um, we'll write practical we'll right questions. Um, and we'll write answers. So we try to anticipate what might this witness say. Um, well, he's just going to say this long thing, and we're going to run out of time, and we're not going to get anywhere. Um, we'll try to identify if there's any visual that we might be able to use to help illustrate the point. And then sometimes we'll actually do what's called a murder board, which is sort of a rehearsal hearing where I play me and they play wit- the witness, um, and they take turns kind of being the witness. Um, and so it's. But I would say like for some witnesses it's hard to know where they're gonna go. Like I I really, with like Secretary Ben Carson, the Secretary of HUD, like I didn't see him getting foreclosures confused with cookies, like I just didn't see that one coming. So it's also really important to sort of, you know, I think be quick on your feet. And I think having been a professor and teaching law school, you know, I called on my students every day And sometimes they didn't give great answers or they gave great answers, but in a direction that I hadn't seen. And so you have to be able to react to that quickly.
0: Uh, That was a stellar moment by the way when you and uh, Ben Carson. And I I know you, like you said, you probably didn't expect him to respond that way. I mean, he's the the housing secretary and you're asking him essentially a pretty basic question. Um, Matter of fact, let's just take a, a, a listen to that exchange.
1: Why is FHA... to to use a term that I think we can both understand, lousy at servicing mortgages.
0: Okay, I have not had any discussions about that particular issue, but I will look it up. Find out what's going on. So,
1: as you look it up, I'd also like you to get back to me, if you don't mind, to explain the disparity in REO rates. Do you know what an REO is?
0: An Oreo?
1: R, no, not an Oreo. An R-E-O, R-E-O. Real estate? What's the O stand for? E-organization. Owned, real estate owned. That's what happens when a property goes to foreclosure. We call it an REO. Mm -hmm. And FHA loans have much higher REOs. That is, they go to foreclosure rather than to loss mitigation or to non-foreclosure alternatives like short sales than comparable loans at the GSEs.
0: I would be extremely happy if you'd like to have you uh, work with the people uh, who do that. So when moments like that happen, Representative uh, Porter, um, are you thinking in your mind, holy shit, did this guy just say this? Like, what is going through your mind when somebody has kind of become unraveled in front of you? And it wasn't just him. I mean, the J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, it was the same thing. Louis DeJoy, the Postmaster General, like they have all become unraveled and exposed in these moments. Do you know the moment that happens?
1: I'm really, really focused on them. So I can't hear or see anyone else in the hearing room. It's even if I'm live and in person, like pre-COVID, it's just me and them. Um, And I I think I often don't have, when it ends, a particular sense of it. It's more like relief. Um, You know, I'm I'm sort of, uh, the moment's over, I'm coming off the stage or whatever. Um, And so often I'll say to my staff, like, I don't know, I don't know if we got anything good. And they're like, you're blowing up on, right? Like everyone's like going nuts. So you know, I think with the exchange with Mr. Carson, for example, like, I was just a little bit outraged. Like, I've, I've been working on this issue with regard to foreclosures and, and REOs and blight in, in communities of color in California here for 10 years. I finally get my chance to try to fix it, and I can't even have a conversation with you. So I think on that one I was a little bit more like this is this is really frustrating because we're not making forward progress. I think with people like Jamie Dimon, what you hope is that exchange prompted him to think a little bit differently about the issue, and in the follow-up that there can be a conversation. About what you know, what what you know, he said he's going to think about it. My expectation is that he actually is thinking about it.
0: Mm. Um, let's uh, go back to your origin story a little bit about how you got into politics. Uh, as you mentioned, you were a, a professor. Before that, you were a teacher, eighth grade, correct? Yes, I taught eighth grade. Yes, yeah, so you taught eighth grade. God bless you, because <laughs> I remember when I was like in eighth grade, I'm like, oh god, <laughs> a total mess. That's my favorite age. So I'm like the only I
1: requested to teach eighth grade math. And the superintendent of the school said, hired. Nobody has ever requested that.
0: Well, Was there a reason why you wanted eighth grade math?
1: Well, I, had, um, I, had, I went to college at Yale. And um, when I was there, I worked uh, two summers and every semester in a program for talented and gifted kids in New Haven. And so, you know, there's a lot of need to help those who have different learning needs, those who are struggling to to learn how to read, those who don't have resources. But especially in some of these under-resourced schools, there is not an extra dollar left over for gifted kids. Um, And that is also a need. Those kids also have learning differences. Um, And so I loved doing that program. And what I taught those, those gifted kids in New Haven was eighth grade math. So I had things like musical monomials, where I would write monomials and polynomials on the cement, and then play music, and you had to get to a polynomial. Um, and so I think I was always tried to be very, very creative. But you know, when you teach something like eighth grade math, and in law school, I taught something called, ready for this? The Uniform Commercial Code. I mean, if that's not smoking hot, what is? So when you teach these courses, I think you're prepared. Like You have to be the party. I do think these subjects are interesting. Eighth grade math is so fundamental to opening up doors for people into all different kinds of career paths. And commercial law is really the foundation of our economy in many ways, right? Borrowing and debt and credit. But I think you have to be prepared to interject some enthusiasm as you draw people into the subject.
0: Uh well th- that I think probably prepared you for politics easily right <laughs> dealing with eighth graders <laughs> like that was a natural entry point to some degree but anyway getting back to your origin story so you 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 did these things and I know that you developed a relationship with Kamala Harris when you were still a professor and also with Elizabeth Warren but what was it that nudged you into into this arena that said you know what I'm going to represent the people of this district. I'm going to run for office.
1: Yeah. During the 2016 election, um, partly because of having known Elizabeth, having worked on research, partly because of the amazing opportunity that Kamala gave me when she was attorney general to help families facing foreclosure and enforce the bank settlement that she got. Um, during the 2016 campaign, I'd been invited to work on housing policy. And so this was everything from housing finance, FHA, um, Fannie Mae to low-income housing, public housing. The need to invest in some of those things, and so I was I was invited to join the transition team, um, which is usually like a six-week stint in Washington to help the new administration think about their priorities and people. And so I had gone to the um, store and I had purchased winter clothes, which I like like boots and tights and other horrible you know instruments of oppression, and I. Like when Clinton lost and Trump won, I took all those clothes back to the store. I rolled the whole suitcase in there and just returned everything. But I remember feeling like I lost my chance. I lost my chance to make a difference in policy. Um, Housing, shelter, homes, these things are so important. They're really a huge building block of opportunity and, and potential way to address inequality in our country. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll have to wait. I'll wait. I'll see what Kamala does. I'll see what Elizabeth does. These are amazing people. They have great things ahead of them. And I was right about that. But somebody said to me, I don't get it, Katie. Like you don't wait for anything. Like if the drive-through line looks long, you park and go into the store. Like you, you'll change grocery lines four times. You're so impatient. Why would you wait? for somebody else to make it possible for you to make a difference in the area of policy that you care about. And so I decided to run um, for office, but it really was, I think, having seen Elizabeth do it, having seen her move from professor to elected official, I had sort of seen a path. And then with Kamala, you know, when I moved to California, I was uh, pregnant with my third child, uh, this is my first time living in Southern California. I grew up in Iowa. When I interviewed in Irvine, I had to look to see where it was in the map. This was you know, 10, 12 years ago. And working for the people of California, helping them with their housing needs, doing programs all over the state, working with community partners, hearing their stories, understanding how complex um, and how deep the need is here for people to deal with housing and affordable housing. I loved serving the people of California. It is a bigger challenge than serving a state with fewer people. Like when I was running that foreclosure prevention program, I would often think like, Ooh, this would have been a lot easier to do in Wyoming or Iowa. Um, but it was such an amazing experience that Kamala gave me. And it made me realize that I, I really loved and needed that public service aspect in my, in my life to be fulfilled.
0: Do your kids understand what you do for a living?
1: Oh, hell yeah. These children are, I mean, lot, let me just tell you the kinds of things that happen at dinner. I mean, it's a reality TV show waiting to happen. So, you know, people are like, my son the other day said, mom, you're just a neoliberal. I was like, Oh my God.
0: Wait, your son called you
1: a neoliberal. Yes. Yes. (laughs) He's a teenager. So this is going to happen. Um, He wouldn't get in the car the other day because he's not going to contribute to global warming. Then I was like, well, how would you get there? Luke? Right. So it's it's constant. Um, my daughter this morning was like, Mom, your bangs look weird. I mean, they're very, like, I hope you're not going to be on TV. Um, my middle son, I mean, when we had the presidential going on, my middle son was a huge Kamala fan. Um, he's like, she is my senator. I'm a Californian. Like, I support her. My youngest daughter's named Elizabeth, so she was a big Warren fan. My older son whipped through a few people, Bet- Beto and somebody else, before landing with Bernie. So, I, I was like living the dream, like every every day, every night. Um, my son put a sign on his door that said, do not enter if you don't support the Green New Deal. I mean, the, these children are... They're, they're living
0: it. Oh, wow. You, um, looks like you have some future politicians <laughs> training policymakers.
1: I, I definitely have like three very challenging constituents that I am dealing with every single day.
0: So if you went over your house, you know that you're, you're pretty good. And in, in terms of reelection, <laughs> if you could
1: win over <laughs> your jobs, they're putting me through the ringer. People are like, Oh, you haven't had any town halls lately. I'm like, well, I have to do a lot of virtual town halls, but I'm having an in-person town hall every night at the dinner table.
0: <laughs> so, um, given how good you are at questioning people um, and hearing, can your kids even get away with anything with you? And and the fact that you just you're just not about the bullshit. Like, do your kids get away with anything? <laughs> oh, I
1: mean, they definitely try. I mean, I think something my mom said to me that was really helpful because I'm one of three, and I we were very. I think challenging. Um, I think we were, you know, we were good students. We liked to learn. We didn't get in a lot of trouble, but I think we were, you know, we were bright and we pushed our parents. But one of the things my mom said is, you know, I didn't win all the time with you guys, but I was always in the, I was always in the fray. Like I didn't let you walk all over me. Um, And so, you know, I think what's hard with, with three kids and particularly with having this kind of job and being a single parent, um, you know, is it's just not, there's not enough of me. To meet the kind of demand, um, and so you know, each of my children, I want to give individual time to, especially with work from home um, and trying to you know do everything virtually and juggle. And you know, so the other night, my I told my son. He said, I, "I said, Luke, you know, you have a math quiz tomorrow." And he said, "Yeah, I don't understand any of that." And it was like four o'clock, and I was like, "Well." You know, I I can help you or I can see if your tutor's available. And he said, Call the tutor. So the tutor's not available. So I said, You know, Luke, I taught eighth grade math. Like I'm pretty sure I can handle the first couple weeks of ninth grade math. And he's like, I don't think you can. And I was like, I can. But by the time I got ready to help him, after I had done two loads of laundry and cooked dinner and picked up and dealt with my other kids, he's like, Mom, I'm too tired. You missed your chance. So I think there's a lot of that with my constituents, too, just wanting to be more places that I can actually be, wanting to hear more conversations than any one person can hear. And so it is cumulative. Like, the longer you do this, the more you learn about your community. And that's probably the most rewarding part about being an elected official. Um, I think people think the job is is all bad because they see so much of the, the bad parts in the news. But there are two true joys of doing this job for me. One is I get to learn about every issue that this country faces, every single one. Ones that I've spent my whole career thinking about, like access to credit for low-income communities, and ones that I hadn't thought about until I got elected to Congress, like what's happening to the Uyghurs in China. So I love that. I get to learn all the time. And I have amazing staffers and people in the community who teach me. Um and then the second thing is and this is something Elizabeth Warren told me when I told her I was going to you know was interested in running for office after the 2016 election she said you know every day you will see something differently in your community than you did before you'll you know there's a building that you've driven by a hundred times and now you're going to tour it there's a group in your community that you know is part of it but you really haven't been in conversation with them and so that is such a pleasure to get to to connect with so many different pockets of your community. And I think a lot of us, for, for reasons of isolation, of being busy, of segregation, all kinds of both structural and personal reasons, don't get that opportunity. And for me, it's something I really treasure.
0: I, I This happens to me on a, a regular basis. And because you're in the thick of it, I, I'm curious to your perspective as to how you don't do this, um, I wake up some days and I look at everything that's happening in the news and I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? Like I literally, it just, I, I'm, I'm in a level of frustration before like 8.30 a.m. How is it that you maintain this incredible sense of optimism and belief in our systems when at times they seem to be failing so badly?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think everyone has their moments and I think COVID-19 has um, put a lot more of the weight of the challenges that this country faces on each of us. And I think if you're not feeling that, you're not, you're not looking around at what this country's going through. Um, but I think part of it is, look, I, 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 by running for office, I put myself in a position where I can take action. So I might wake up, look at the news, and be like, oh Like today, I was looking at the pyrotechnic gender reveal parties that started these wildfires. And I was like, I just can't. I just can't. I have no words, right? But then I realized I got to get going. Like I have things I have to do today. I have you know um, voters I have to engage. I have conversations I have to have with candidates who are trying to to run and win around the country, and so I think that is is really important. The other thing is i mean i I was a teacher, and so I really believe that people can learn, and in that learning, they can learn in part, how to change the world in the direction that they want to. And that's why people go to law school. I mean, sure, there are people who go to law school because they can't figure out what else to do or they can't, you know, their dream of being a pro golfer failed or whatever it is. But most people who go to law school want to do something positive um, to help the world. And so, you know, I, I think about that a lot, that that's what a lot of my constituents want. But they don't know how and they feel, and they are, and I think this is such an important point, they are actively... Warded by things like corporate special interests from making change. And so I, I think people often don't realize the degree to which the entire narrative around some of the problems in this country is being shaped. And then people are led to believe intentionally that they can't change things. But they can, right? But that's that's something that I think is is really, really important that came out of the 2018 presidential primary is a number of candidates. And I think women were particularly skilled at doing this, at helping people see, no, no, you can change this. No, no, we can fight back. Um, And I think that women are better at that in part because we've had so many doors closed on us. We have been told so many times that we can't um, or held to a different standard. And so I think there's more, there's more grit there Frankly, Um, and I think that women dig into that to find that that sense that if I can't change it this way, I'm going to try this way. I'm not going to give up.
0: So um, one of the things that I think everybody has noticed is that when it comes to the house, that there's just a wave of really progressive, engaging, charismatic, um, truly caring. Uh, people that are now in the House or are now poised to be in the House, you yourself included. And so you have the Truth to Power uh, political action committee that has supported a number of progressive candidates. One on my TV show I just had on Jamal Bowman, who is ter- who's terrific and he's great. Um, you got Richie Torres. Uh, so seeing all these uh, these wave of candidates, um, what do you attribute to the fact that people like herself and Jamal, um, even starting with you know, AOC and that they have decided that they're going to get involved in this fight? What do you attribute um why there has been so much change at that particular level?
1: No, I mean, I think Donald Trump's presidency um did galvanize a lot of people. And I think for a lot of people, it wasn't necessarily um, him winning so much as it came a little bit later with what he then did. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that's great about the class of 2018 and it's so it's going to be so true about the new members who are coming to Congress from all around the country is most of us didn't serve in elected office. Now, some of us did. And so and those people bring a valuable perspective, I have to say, like some of my colleagues, like Veronica Escobar, um, who's been in office, I sometimes go to them because they have a perspective on some of this that I don't. But I think the fact that we're seeing people like a middle school principal, right? Like, You know, if you think it's tough to take on the Republicans, like you try taking on middle school kids. Like Jamal is going to, you know, be no problem, um, right, standing up for what he believes in in Congress. And so, one of the great things about Truth to Power is this leadership organization is that we've really tried to identify candidates who have life experiences that they are willing to use and draw upon to make policy. So, they're not people who are pretending that everything in their life has been great. Um, These are not people who necessarily had, were not born into money. They had to overcome obstacles, whether it was homelessness, like Candace Valenzuela, whether it was having a parent with a mental health problem, whatever it is. These are people who have overcome challenges and therefore believe that the other Americans can too. And they want to make sure that other Americans get those opportunities. And for me, we need a lot more people like that. Um, And some of my colleagues, you know, they just you would think nothing wrong has ever happened to them. And I'm like, do, do you not, like I go to the pharmacy and I get told that that generic drug is $50 and I want to poke my eyes out. Like, I don't know what's wrong with them. Like, do they not get sick? Um, and so, you know, I, I think a lot, of the, a lot of it is about really being willing to step up and say, I too am really concerned about this. This is how it's touched my life or this is how I see it in my community and then wanting to fight for it. So it's a terrific group of people. I'm really, really excited about the House becoming a more dynamic place. And I think we need to commit to building a multi-generational, multi-racial leadership structure. And so that is something that we need to continue to press upon in the next next Congress too, is trying to elevate voices at different levels of experience, um, both age and I think experience being in the House.
0: Yeah, because there are some politicians that I look at Mitch McConnell, who I'm like, do you even like people? Like, I don't even understand you, dude. Like, it's like you hate people. Like, why are you running in something that is about a public service? And I think that is the part that people forget. Um, Before I play this fun little game with you, uh, Representative Porter, um, let me ask you, how do you like the sound of Senator Katie Porter for representing the great state of California?
1: (laughs) I'm really, really excited just about what truly cannot say how excited I am about watching Kamala Harris um, helped Joe Biden win the presidency and become our vice president. So that is just such a delight. Um, When everyone was like, oh, look, she's so cool. She has sneakers. And I was like, you know, she's always been cool. Like, like I'm so glad that more people are getting to see that. Um, And we are very fortunate in California to have so many talented leaders, up and down the state, at the local level, at the county level, um, in state government, in the federal government. There is, there are so many choices, and so, you know, I obviously this person, whoever this senator will be, will represent me and my very discerning constituent kids. So I, you know, I want this person to to be a fighter. I want this person to be a leader. I want this person to push forward um, what they care about and understand the incredible responsibility that comes with representing a state as large and as diverse as California. Um, but you know, I'm at this point, to be honest, I'm really, really focused every single day on making it through the day. Like, did I forget a child somewhere? Um, did I forget to get on a call? Um, you know, what am I going to do for dinner? I mean, today I'm very preoccupied with this disaster to be with this cooking show. Yeah. <laughs> well, did they tell you what
0: you're going to make?
1: Yeah, they initially wanted me to make like basically they gave me a choice of like five variants of something and the thing is I have a huge aversion to macaroni and cheese. Like huge aversion.
0: Wait, what? You don't like it? No,
1: huge aversion. So when I was in fourth grade, I got the st- stomach flu. It had nothing to do with the macaroni and cheese, but ever I then after fourth grade when I was 10, I was puke free since 1983. Like didn't get sick for like thirty years after that, and so I just like have this association with macaroni and cheese. So it's so bad that if I go into a restaurant and someone orders it, I like have to be reseated. It's like creepy. It's mostly psychological.
0: So um, that had to be craft. It had to be craft that you had the bad experience with. There was no way that was somebody's homemade macaroni and cheese.
1: Oh, that was the school cafeteria. Yeah.
0: You you may not know this, but you're 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 invited to the cookout. All right. If you're invited to the cookout mac and cheese is gonna be there all right we have to we have to change this somebody out there has to make you some marvelous macaroni and cheese so you can get over this don't let the school cafeteria mac and cheese rob you of this joy that is mac and cheese it's
1: you know how they would put it in the scoop and it would stay in that molded shape
0: yes that's no that's that's a bad sign that that's bad macaroni and cheese All right. Before I get you out of here, it's a game I play with all my guests. It's called This or That. I give you two choices. You pick, and the fate of the world depends on it. As if your job isn't already about saving the fate of the world anyway. First up, uh, your bingo board or the whiteboard. <laughs>
1: Whiteboard, because I have more flexibility with what I can do with it. It's like always there, ready to be.
0: I love when you break out the the whiteboard. This is like Jon Snow whipping out a sword. It's just like (laughs) it's over for whoever sees the whiteboard. Uh, Muting, unmuting uh, problems on Zoom or folks with flip phones. Which one of those is more prehistoric (laughs) or annoying, I should say?
1: I think the muting, unmuting, there's something kind of like old school about the flip phone that has its like moments, right? Um, but the muting unmuting is, just, I mean, we've had some real doozy incidents. Um, and it's, it's tough. I mean, everyone's grappling with it. But um, I think, you know, the muting unmuting is, is about respect for your colleagues. The flip phone is kind of your own eccentric choice.
0: Now, you know, just so you know, that some people do the, the flip phone because it doesn't have a cloud on it. So that's their way of making sure their information remains hidden for some whatever reason that might be. Uh, I'm told these are two of your favorite books, uh, Scarcity or Lonesome Dove. Ooh,
1: Lonesome Dove. Um, I'm a fiction reader. And I mean, it's very odd that my one of my favorite books would be this Western um, but Lonesome Dove won the Pulitzer Prize. It's Larry McMurdy. Um, and what it really is is a story about friendship. It's about these two kind of retired Texas Rangers who start a ranch together. And it's really the story of their friendship um, as they go through the years, especially their later years of life. And um, it's, my, it's my favorite book. Mm, okay.
0: Um, and finally, this, a Suburban or a Minivan?
1: Oh, Minivan minivan like that's so easy I mean I was looking at the minivan today and it has 128,000 miles on it and I was like this is so great like I'll probably have at least another 100,000 miles before I'm gonna have to deal with changing this car so you know my my kid was like well it's kind of gross in here and I was like yeah because you throw your crap everywhere like don't blame the van like get in there and clean up your crap right like you're the one leaving you know, straw wrappers and books and who knows what else in the back of the van. So no, the van is, is awesome. I, I recently shoved a pool float, like a six foot pool floaty in there. Um, It's just, it's the greatest. It's the greatest thing.
0: I'm assuming this is not necessarily uh, legal or ethical rather, I should say, but I'm surprised that people have not approached you about upgrading the minivan or with the new, like a minivan sort of sponsorship has not come your way.
1: Somebody did make me get um, a minivan cookie that was really one of these beautiful, like beautifully painted, it's like a painting on a cookie of my minivan. And I thought that was pretty fun. Um, but I, the minivan doesn't need an upgrade. That sucker's got, you know, it's roaring on. <laughs>
0: well look uh representative Porter thank you so much for spending this time with me I know you're extremely busy you have uh, a country to help run you have children you have all these things going on so it does mean a lot that you took this time and uh, you I'm recently moved to LA I've been here now for two years and as you said about the level of leadership here it really is quite um, amazing and so uh, I would say I wish you were my district representative but I got a, I think I got a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm good. But the 45th district is well represented by you. So good luck with everything. And um, we'll be watching it. And I can't wait to see you totally annihilate someone else who deserves it uh, <laughs> in one of these hearings. So thank you and good luck with everything.
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right. I appreciate it. All right. Representative Porter's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Y'all remember Amy Cooper? She was the white woman who called the police on the Blackbird watcher in Central Park and falsely claimed that he was trying to assault her because she knew her whiteness combined with the police's general thirst to inflict the ultimate punishment on black people for small infractions would result in her receiving the proper justice for A black man daring to tell her to leash her dog, which is in accordance with park rules. She's in the process of negotiating a possible plea deal for filing a false report and come to find out that Amy Cooper didn't just call the police on Christian Cooper once, which is the video most of us saw. She called twice and you best believe I'm bothered. In the second call that we're just learning about, Amy Cooper again told a dispatcher that Christian Cooper tried to physically assault her. So that's two 911 calls where she's making false claims that a black man is out to do her no good. Christian Cooper said after she lost her job and temporarily lost custody of her dog that she has suffered enough. Enough is enough, he said. With all due respect to Christian Cooper, and I realize that he's the one who was victimized, so... His feelings definitely have priority over mine, but he can't so easily overlook the fact that this situation could have had deadly consequences. Black skin is a weapon as far as many of the police are concerned. And because a white woman was at the center of this false complaint, it is not hyperbole to say that she put Christian Cooper's life in jeopardy. She knew this, which is why she called to begin with, and she made sure She did everything to put some Miss Anne sauce on this whole situation. And people are mad about what Bill Burr said on Saturday Night Live. I don't feel sorry for Amy Cooper. And while it's up to Christian Cooper to forgive her, the rest of us certainly don't have to comply. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Verner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends.